Today on the Matt Wall Show, the law banning child mutilation has now been passed by the Tennessee legislature. We are fighting back and we are winning. Meanwhile, crazed drag queens and trans activists, as they lose, are getting more desperate, are now threatening violence and claiming that they're victims of genocide. These are the scare tactics that have worked in the past, but no longer. Also, video services of HHS Secretary Rachel Levine demanding that he be not only tolerated, but celebrated, and says that explicitly. Donald Trump visits East Palestine. Pete Buttigieg follows behind him a day later. The Biden administration's most notorious luggage thief has apparently been on the prowl for much longer than we thought. Finally, a far-left race activist finds out to her horror that she is descended from a pilgrim on the Mayflower. How quickly does the oppressed become the oppressor? All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, 100% of people will die someday. 100%. According to a recent poll, 62% of Americans who think about their own death a lot, uh, a lot of the time, still don't have a will. And that's kind of like uh, being afraid of drowning, but refusing to wear a life jacket or to learn how to swim. Creating a will is one of the most important things you can do to ensure your belongings and your loved ones are taken care of after you pass away. My partners at Epic Will can help you set up uh, a will today, and they can do it all that for just $119 in as little as five minutes. Epic Will can help you create your last will and testament, your living will, even healthcare power of attorney. Go to epicwill.com Walsh to get my discount code and save an extra 10% on your complete will package. With Epic Will's easy-to-use template, all you got to do is fill in the blanks, and, uh, and, and in order to do that, you have to go to epicwill.com Walsh to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. That's epicwill.com Walsh. Today, House Bill 1, called the Protecting Children from Gender Mutilation Act, finally passed the Tennessee House of Representatives. It's uh, legislation that will ban doctors from giving puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones to children or performing gender, quote-unquote, gender reassignment surgeries on children. This law, which will uh, soon be signed by the governor and uh, then officially enacted, will actively save kids from one of the most sinister forms of child abuse the world has ever known. Laws just like it are being passed all across the country, which means not only that countless children will be protected from this evil, but also that the cultural tide is turning in a very real and measurable way. And that's not something that happens by accident. Now, it's true, as the saying goes, that culture is upstream from politics. And so this bill in Tennessee and others around the country are in large part a response to cultural changes. And those cultural changes are not incidental, but rather the direct result of work that has been done by many people in many places, including us here, of course, at The Daily Wire. Um, as for myself, you know that I've been uh, fighting against gender ideology for many years, yet for much of that time, fighting, like it does so often for me, for, for much of that time, fighting meant simply, you know, talking about it. And there is value in talking about things, of course, but our problem as conservatives is that too often we just leave it there. We talk and talk and talk, and we're in the talking phase the whole time. And when that doesn't work, we talk some more. It feels fruitless after a while, and it is, if there's no escalation, no next phase. Talk is impotent if it isn't coupled with action. And so a couple of years ago, I decided that it was time for action, and a short time later, we published Johnny the Walrus. You know, we've had a lot of fun with the very hilarious fact that I'm a best-selling LGBT children's author, and the book itself is funny and meant to be, but it also has a serious purpose. It's an actual children's book meant for children, um, which has now been read by and to many children, and which is supposed to be an antidote to the gender ideology and indoctrination that pervades the children's section in nearly every bookstore in America. Uh, the book would go on to sell over 100,000 copies in a few months. Uh, we were not the first conservatives to publish a children's book with a quote-unquote conservative outlook on a current issue, but ours was certainly um, at least among the most successful in that category. Now, when the book was published, we had already begun filming What is a Woman? And in January of 2022, Though the movie wasn't complete yet, we had uh, filmed enough to be sure that we had something significant on our hands. And that's when I announced publicly that 2022 would be the year when we wage an all-out assault on gender ideology. And I promised that we would be dealing at some major blows that year. And I wanted to call the shot so that people would know that this is all part of a plan. I wanted our allies to know that. I wanted our enemies to know that. That month, my episode of Dr. Phil was released and went viral a few months later. What is a woman came out, took the country by storm. And then in the fall, with all the momentum we had built up, we set out to expose and shut down Vanderbilt's child mutilation clinic. A few weeks after that report, the clinic was shut down. We we're holding a rally in the state capitol. Uh, thousands of people were there. Several lawmakers attended the rally, announced that they would 
work on legislation to ban the practice in Tennessee. Then this week, that bill passed and now awaits the governor's signature. Uh, while similar bills work their way through uh, the legislatures in many other states, or in some cases have now been passed. Now, lots of people on the right talk about fighting and uh, call themselves fighters. But when I say that we're fighting here at The Daily Wire, this is what I mean. And of course, none of this is possible without our members, the films, the books, the investigative work, the rallies, everything else. Can't do any of that or achieve any of the victories without people who support us and support our work and uh, by supporting it, contribute to it. So I use the word we when I talk about all these things because this truly is a we operation. Like I said already, I was talking about this for many years, but only talking. I can talk on my own. I don't need anybody else for that. You know, I can just, I can talk all day, but uh, I needed the Daily Wire and all of you to actually do all of these things. That's why your membership is so important. And this work becomes all the more important as the other side continues its own escalation. So for example, there's another bill uh, soon to be passed here in Tennessee, which would outlaw sexual performances for children. This would have the effect of primarily banning quote-unquote family-friendly drag shows. And the reason that I say it would primarily ban those is that drag queens are the primary ones who are most eager and insistent on performing in front of kids. Which is all the more reason. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little bit, little bit like if I said that, uh, you know, uh, stealing is illegal and that primarily affects kleptomaniacs. Well, it's not a bill that says only kleptomaniacs can't steal, but if you have a compulsion to steal, then uh, in, a, in, a, in a certain way, you might say that you're more affected by that bill. But that's because of you. That's a you problem. It's your own fault. Uh, and it's the same thing here. So the drag queens who feel targeted by a bill that won't let them sexualize children, well, if it targets you, that's only because you um, have this, apparently, by your own confession, this uh, special uh, compulsion to engage in that kind of behavior, which is all the more reason why you shouldn't be allowed to. But a leftist activist and drag queen who goes by the name of Bella Duball addressed a crowd here in Tennessee a few days ago. And, uh, and he, he had his own suggestion for how the opponents of this bill ought to respond. Leftists on social media have applauded this speech, called it defiant and brave. And it is at least one of those things, the former that is. Um, let's watch. This is an attempt to erase drag in Tennessee. This bill will further harm trans people who are literally just living their lives. I need you to contact your house representative and tell them this will not stand. Tell them, urge them to vote no, because if they don't, this will make public pride illegal this year. Now, if you don't know, we've been having public drag in Tennessee for over 50 years. And Pride began to commemorate the events of Stonewall. Back in Stonewall, we weren't allowed to do drag. It was criminalized. And so what happened when the cops came in and tried to beat us down? We picked up them bricks and sent them packing. The original Pride was a riot. And if this year we need to remind them that we will fight for our liberation. I may need your help with legal fees because mama ain't quitting. I'll get arrested. I don't care. Somebody's got to be first. We'll sue the state. But whatever happens, we are queer people. We are very strong. And we will rise. Thank you so much, y'all, for enduring that. Let's get back to your drag show. I would introduce myself, but that is the least southern thing that a lady can do. So to be entirely clear, this drag queen is calling for violence because he won't be able to perform strip teases in front of children anymore. That's how important grooming is to this groomer. He would rather kill than be deprived of his right to sexualize small children. But um, why is this so important to him? Why, why can't he just be satisfied to perform his whole weird and depraved routine in front of adults behind closed doors? There was no movement to outlaw drag until you brought children into it. So why can't you just leave them out of it? The answer is partly that they, that they get a sexual thrill, apparently, out of cross-dressing and dancing for kids. Um, it's part of the fetish for them, and they will kill to protect their fetish because their fetish is their whole identity. It's all they have. It's all they are. It's all they've chosen to be. The other answer is that 
drag shows for kids are part of their master plan for uh, indoctrinating and desensitizing the youngest generations. They can't uh, convince the kids to enjoy this stuff, but they can condition them to accept sexual perversion as normal. And uh, the sooner they're exposed to it, the easier that is to do. That's a large part of the point. A third part of the explanation, this is an essential thing to understand if you're trying to figure out why these people would threaten to murder others because uh, you're not going to let them strip for children. The other part is that is, is simply that they are, they are raging narcissists who have never been told no until now. We have been a disastrously permissive culture, convinced that the worst thing we can ever say to anyone, especially an LGBT activist, is no. And, uh, and now they've become convinced that they have the right to never be told no because they've never been told no. Gender ideology and LGBT activism um, is all just sexualized narcissism anyway. They've made narcissism their entire worldview. And they're reacting as any narcissist does when you tell him, no, you can't do that. You cannot do whatever you want. There are rules you will follow. It doesn't matter if you don't like it. Your desires do not supersede the law, whether the laws of man or of God. Your desires do not supersede either. They can't handle this news. They, they don't know what to do with it. Keep in mind, these people honestly believe that they have the right not just to be tolerated, but to be celebrated. I've made this observation many times, but don't take it from me. Here's a trans HHS official, Rachel Levine, in a resurfaced video that went viral this week, stating this point explicitly. Listen. You know, uh, what I like to say is, you know, in terms of diversity, I mean, diversity is so powerful for any organization and diversity in all of its different aspects, um, including for sexual and gender minorities. Um, and, um, you know, you don't want to have a tolerant environment. You know, gee, thanks for tolerating me. I really appreciate that. Um, and, you know, an accepting environment is good, but you really want to work on, on a welcoming and even a celebratory environment for diversity in all of its aspects, including for LGBTQ individuals. Um, and so, you know, uh, Hershey approached that. We must celebrate him, he tells us. Long gone are the days of uh, leave us alone, let us have our privacy. That, that was always a bait and switch, obviously. Because now, actually, to leave them alone would be an attack on them. That's an attack. It is your obligation to not leave them alone, but rather to lift them on your shoulders like Rudy at the end of the movie, and parade them around while the crowd cheers. This demand for celebration is, again, partly a tactic, but it's also a sincere expression of their overwhelming, suffocating narcissism. For people who demand celebration and, uh, and, and who claim the right to do literally anything they want, up to and including holding sex shows for toddlers, is it any wonder that they react with such demonic fury when we not only don't celebrate, but actively fight against their agenda. Yesterday, the trans activist Aaron Reed published a tweet, uh, tweet thread which garnered 40,000 likes uh, in, in which he claims that the laws being passed in places like Tennessee and elsewhere represent an actual genocide against trans people. And he meant it literally, he even provided the UN definition of genocide to prove his case. But, but of course, the definition disproves his case, but that's not the way he sees it. It's not meant as hyperbole when these people talk this way. They, they actually see it as equivalent to genocide if anyone tells them no. If any, if any limitations are placed on the trans activist or the LGBT activist at all, if any attempt is made to control any of their behavior, it is genocide. Murdering an entire group of people and tossing their bodies in a mass grave is on the same moral playing field as telling Aaron Reed that he can't strip in front of kids or chemically castrate, uh, you know, a 12-year-old. Call, indeed, calling Aaron Reed him, as I just did, in the first place is genocide, an act uh, of evil indistinguishable from the Holocaust. This is what they honestly believe. And it's what happens when self-obsession becomes identity and identity becomes religion. And their rage only increases all the more as they realize that this kind of hysterical yammering, along with the threats of violence and the attempts at deplatforming and shouting bigot and labeling and all that, as they begin to realize that this isn't going to work anymore, it did work for a long time, but it doesn't work anymore. Because they're now dealing with adversaries who cannot be manipulated or cowed into silence that easily or at all. 
And that's why I will conclude here by assuring you, you, Aaron Reed, and you, the drag queen threatening violence and, and, and the rest of your ilk, that we aren't even remotely done. Okay, this is honestly only the beginning. We've got a lot more in store for you. I promised you a year ago that we were going to war here, and I kept that promise. I'll keep this one too. There's much more to be done that needs to be done, and we aim to do it. So the battle continues, whether you like it or not. Now let's get to our five headlines. Given the uh, dreary economic forecasts that lie ahead, you might be looking for ways to cut back on spending. Pure Talk saves the average family over $900 a year when they switch from Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile. Get unlimited talk, text, and plenty of data for just $30 a month. That's it. Pure Talk is so sure that you're going to love your service. They're backing it up with a 100% money-back guarantee. So stop paying a fortune to Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile Cut your bill in half with Pure Talk. Their U.S.-based customer service team makes the switch really easy. Switch over to Pure Talk in as little as 10 minutes while keeping your phone and your phone number. Your first month is guaranteed risk-free. Go to puretalk.com and enter promo code Walsh to save 50% off your first month. That's puretalk.com, promo code Walsh. Pure Talk is simply smarter wireless. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We have to start with this. I don't know if it's the most important story in the country right now. Uh, I mean, it's not, but I, but it is at least the funniest. And so you know all about Sam Britton. He's the former Biden, Biden energy official who uh, liked to cross-dress and called himself they, them, and was also into bestiality role play and all kinds of other sick and insane things that none of us needed or wanted to know about, but we do now. Um, and he's also the guy who got fired after stealing luggage from uh, what we thought was uh, only, only two women on two separate occasions Stole their luggage right out of the airport, out of the baggage claim. Now, I told you at the time that that you know this guy, pretty clear to me, stealing the luggage. He's he's not stealing it because he wants the luggage, right? Nobody needs that much baggage, especially someone like him already who already comes with so much baggage to begin with. But it's very clear that he is doing this and he's targeting women because it's all part again of the sick, twisted fetish. Uh, he has a thing for stealing and wearing women's clothing. That was clear to me. And that brings us to this tweet from a woman named Asya Kamsen, I think. We'll just call her Asya. Hopefully she's okay with that. Uh, here's the tweet. And um, let me see. Can we pull the tweet up? There it is. So my name is Asya, Tanzanian fashion designer based in Houston, Texas, USA. I lost my bag in 2018 in the D.C. airport. Recently, I heard the news on Fox News about Sam Britton. Luggage issue. Surprisingly, I found his images where he wore my custom-made outfit, which was in the lost bag in 2018. And then you can see the, uh, the dated photo of her in the dress in 2018. And then you also can see Brinton in, uh, in the exact same outfit. So it's a rather distinct outfit. Um, it's uh, very distinct because she made, she custom-made the outfit. She's a fashion designer. And her luggage goes missing in 2018. Four years ago, and then Britain turns up wearing her custom clothing. Uh, you know, it, it's it's pretty close to a case closed on this thing. So what this means is that there he is, and I apparently he's also wearing this wrong. He's wearing it. I think he's wearing it backwards or something. He doesn't even know how to wear the wear the outfit. What this means is that Britain, the uh, baggage bandit, has been patrolling our airports for years. He's been lurking in the baggage claim area like some kind of uh, predatory, you know, forest creature on the prowl. This, this is like when when all the small dogs and cats in a neighborhood start going missing and you know that there must be a coyote in the woods. Except this coyote steals women's luggage and then parades around in their clothing. Um, so when we say, here's what makes this so... Uh, apt is that when we say that these men are appropriating the female identity, well, he was literally doing that, right? I mean, we were saying that about Sam Britton when he was first hired and, and we were supposed to applaud him. And I know I said, many other people said that he's making a mockery, he's appropriating womanhood and all the rest of it. Like, we didn't realize how literally correct we were. He's actually stealing their clothing and putting it on. Yet nobody ever connected the dots. That's what's interesting. At least we don't think they did. You know, I like to imagine that there was maybe one detective somewhere out there who was uh, at the station late one night smoking cigarettes and drinking black coffee and pouring through all these missing baggage cases. And then uh, 
you know, you realize that it was all done by one man and that there was a criminal mastermind on the loose and he had the bulletin board up with all the newspaper clippings and the, you know, and the, uh, and the lines connecting them and all that. And he realized that it was Sam Britton the entire time. And he tried to make the arrest, but the brass at the station stopped him. That's what I like to imagine happened anyway. And if it didn't happen, then someone should make a movie where something like that does happen. All I know is that now, like, we are seeing the beginning of a, of a new Me Too movement. Except that in this case, it's just women coming forward because Sam Britton stole their baggage. It's going to be, it's a whole Me Too thing now. Sam Britton is the Harvey Weinstein of cross-dressing baggage thieves. He's the, uh, he's the Bill Cosby of baggage claim, is Sam Britton. And I just hope that more women have the courage to speak out. It is, like, it's, in all seriousness, it's, it's pretty disturbing, too. Can you imagine? Like, you lose your baggage, and then, and then this creep, then, you know, this creep turns up wearing it. Um, so stay tuned more on that. I I will say if you're a woman, if you're a woman who has lost your baggage at any point in the last decade, anywhere within the continental United States, or probably, or probably anywhere else in the globe, we don't know how far this conspiracy stretches, but if you were in that category, I would start looking through, well, let me stop myself. I was going to say, I would start Googling images of Sam Britton to see if you can find him wearing your clothing. But if you do that, you're going to see a lot of other things about Sam Britton that you don't want to see. So never mind. You know what? Maybe it's better just not to know. You probably don't want to know. And it, all you could do now is move on with your life. All right. WKBN in Ohio reports, former President Donald Trump spoke to those in East Palestine after a short stop at uh, Little Beaver Creek on Wednesday, telling locals, you are not forgotten. Trump landed Wednesday afternoon at the Youngstown Warren Regional Airport. He met briefly with local leaders at Little Beaver Creek before making his remarks to the media. Details of his visit had not been released to the public in advance, but several of Trump's supporters were in the area to uh, greet him with cheers. Some of the supporters chanted, we love you, Trump, at USA. Trump spoke to a small group of local leaders, first responders, and the media at the local fire station. Said he's donating thousands of bottles of cleaning supplies and pallets of bottled water to the area that were collected through his Trump organizations. Um, and he, uh, you know, he walked around the town. He also went to uh, McDonald's and bought uh, McDonald's for all the firefighters and first responders there. And he, as mentioned, he gave a speech. We have a little bit of the of that speech. Let's listen to the people of East Palestine and to the nearby communities in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Uh, we have told you loud and clear: you are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. We stand with you. We pray for you, and we will stay with you in your fight to help answer and. The accountability that you deserve will have that accountability. It'll all be out there very clearly. Um, Now, while he's giving this speech and he's in Ohio, Biden is in Ukraine. And this is the advantage that Trump has. Uh, It's one of the one of the key differences between him and Biden. uh, Really between him and, and many in D.C., if not almost everyone in D.C., is that, and you can see this in the visit, that he connects with normal Americans. Um, he just, he does. And, and the media has been perplexed by this for years. They don't like it. They, uh, they've, tried all, they've tried all different kinds of methods to, to sever this bond between normal Americans and this connection between normal Americans and, and Trump. Um, but, but really, well, I said that they've tried, they've tried many different strategies. Really, it's just the one, the one strategy, which is to, to yell at everybody. To yell at everyone and call you a bigot and call Trump a bigot, and that's the only strategy they've used. Surprisingly, that hasn't worked. Um, but he connects with normal Americans, and that has a lot to do with the fact that he doesn't have contempt for them the way that Biden does and the way that Pete Buttigieg does and all of these uh, D.C. swamp creatures do. And, you know, I've made this point many times about Trump that you, you look at He's, he's seen as this uh, hostile figure that's always uh, attacking people and getting into fights and all the rest of it. Of course, that's part of his appeal. But you look at everyone that Trump has attacked, okay, and it's a long list. Oftentimes, he's attacking in response to being attacked, but it's a, it's a long list. Um, but it's almost always other politicians, people in media, uh, celebrities, public figures. That's like, that's everyone. That's the entire list all people in that world. Now, Biden, on the other hand, and the Democrats, they attack Americans. Okay. They attack normal people, just citizens. 
labeling them bigots and racists. Uh, you know, is, is the Justice Department infamously labeling parents at uh, PTA meetings and school board meetings terrorists? Trump is, never does that because he doesn't actually hate normal people, whereas Biden really does. These people really do. Um, and it, it turns out that when you have basic respect for people and you treat them like human beings, they respond in kind. Shockingly. Now, Pete Buttigieg also showed up. Uh, he showed up today. So it's a day later. He finally comes. And we have one clip. I haven't watched this clip yet, but he's confronted by a reporter. Uh, and let's watch this. Sorry, Pete. Uh-huh. I just have a quick question. Uh-huh. Uh, the American public doesn't seem to be very confident in your ability to do your job. Will you be resigning anytime soon? Yeah, I'm not here for politics. I'm here to make sure the community can get what they need. Will you apologize? Sorry, I, I want to be will you apologize the for the response? That, um, for the slow response taking your probably time? Probably one of the big things. And yeah. let's, let's go in here and get away from you. No, no apology? Why did it take you an entire two and a half weeks to actually get here to respond to East Palestine? Will you apologize to the residents of this city? Uh, he's not there for politics. Really? Well, what are you there? Well, first of all, th- of course you're there for politics. That's, that, that's uh, the only reason that you're there. I mean, are you there because they actually need you for the cleanup? Um, and if they did, you're three weeks late, which is why Buttigieg showing up three weeks late it's really the worst possible thing, especially a day after Trump, okay? Because you're, you're, you're coming in a day after him, and the optics are that you only came because Trump came, which is, those are the optics, and that's also the reality. He came because Trump went, and he also went because, uh, because he's, he's been harangued and, and uh, yelled at, and finally he said, fine, I'll go. Um, but I think that just from a pure optics and politics standpoint, showing up three weeks late is pretty much the worst of all possible worlds. Uh, You're better off not going at all if you're going to go three weeks late. You're better just not going. Because then, now that's not a good option. Best option is to be there on the scene shortly after to show that you actually care about this and that this is on your radar. Because yeah, again, nobody thinks that Pete Buttigieg is actually practically needed there to do anything any more than, than Trump is. Like Trump's not there to help with the cleanup and to clean up all the uh, train cars that are still laying all over the place. But the, the practical benefit of anyone showing up, especially someone who's currently in the government, is to send the message to the people there in the town that you are, that you care about this, that you're aware of it, that you're working on it, that it's on your priority list. And instead, for three weeks, the people in that town have felt totally uh, abandoned by the federal government because they have been. So what? again, what's the benefit of showing up three weeks late? You, everybody knows you're only there because you have to be. Um, it's, it's, you can't pretend that it was an urgent priority because it took you three weeks. But the fact that you're going at all, now it's just, it just advertises that, yeah, you know, it's, it's low down on the list of priorities. If you're if if you're if it's if three weeks have passed and no one from the Biden administration uh, has showed up, then it's a really bad situation politically. But your best option, I think, then is to not go at all and then make some excuse about how well we're not. We've decided we decided not to do that because that would be political showmanship and uh, it, we would be getting in the way and it wouldn't be appropriate. It, like make some kind of claim like that. I mean, total totally bogus. But at least you could go with that. Um, excuse, that excuse is out the window because you did still show up. And of course, claiming that uh, they don't want to make it into a political theater, they, that, that, wouldn't, that, that wouldn't work anyway because uh, Biden and Biden officials, they will show up at the scene of tragedies if it's a, trage- if it's a tragedy, a catastrophe that they find politically useful to them. I mean, they'll send, they'll send the vice president to a funeral of someone that no one in the administration remotely knew if they think it's politically useful to them. But they figured that this was not politically useful. I said this from the very beginning. There are some people upset about it, but it's just, it's obviously true that this happened in a, this happened to a small town in Ohio. These are white working class people for the most part. And so they just don't rate very high. They're, they're, 
Biden administration doesn't care about them. Um, they're not in the base. And they figured that it's just not like they, they, that's ex- white working class people are exactly the kind of people that if you're in D.C., if you're in the media, you, you ignore. And they've gotten used to ignoring them and they figured they could do that here. But it didn't work out that way for them. I wanted to play this clip from CNN. Um, CNN had this report on the problem of there not being enough black doctors. Play a little bit of this. Right now, fewer than 6% of doctors in the U.S. identify as black or African-American. That's despite the fact that the community makes up 12% of the country's total population. And that's raising concerns about the impact on public health. CNN Health reporter Jacqueline Howard joins us now. So Jacqueline, what is being done to rectify this? That's the thing, Bianca. More needs to be done to make sure that our physician workforce here in the U.S. reflects the diversity seen among patients. Now, what has been done so far? We've seen more efforts to get STEM programs in grade schools. At the medical school level, we've seen more mentorship programs, particularly for students of color. But when you look at the physician workforce right now, active doctors at this moment, we're still seeing 5.7 percent are black or African-American. And that's compared with, as Victor said, 12 percent of the U.S. population. When you look at Native Americans, less than 1% of doctors are Native American, and that's compared with up to 2% of patients. When you look at Hispanic or Latino physicians, 6.9% are doctors compared with up to 18% of the U.S. population. So those differences are what's concerning here. And experts say we need to do more to make sure our doctor workforce reflects the diversity seen among patients. Yeah, we need to do more because the research shows, and we've discussed this before, the Mm -hmm. benefits of a more diverse workforce. Uh, Often, um, sometimes uh, doctors will dismiss the concerns or symptoms Mm -hmm. of a certain demographic. Uh, Explain uh, what the studies show. Exactly, Victor. And research shows that when we have a more diverse physician workforce, there's more understanding and more trust between the patient and the doctor. If the doctor has an understanding of the patient's cultural experiences, cultural background, lived experiences, especially when it comes to racism or discrimination. Okay. Yeah. If you want to treat someone's medical condition, you need to have a, you need to have an appreciation of their lived experience of racism, right? If somebody has, uh, I don't know, a, a brain tumor uh, well, how how is a doctor going to treat the brain tumor if he, if he doesn't first understand the lived experience of racism? You know, you got to take that into account. That's why if you go in and you have a brain or any kind of medical condition, you know, doctor, I have diabetes, and uh, they'll they'll ask you, well, what's your lived experience? Have you experienced racism? Tell me about your lived experience. This is what we hear from. There's a couple of points about this. First of all, you you always see the left's elitism with these kinds of things, when they're worried about diversity among, anytime you hear a report about a problem of uh, there not being enough diversity in a certain workforce, it's always going to be, oh, uh, there needs to be more diversity among doctors and surgeons. There needs to be more diversity among, uh, you know, Hollywood actors. There needs to be more diversity with NFL head coaches, right? It's always these like high paying, very visible jobs, the kind of jobs that they being the elites, respect because this is, it, because these are the elites themselves. Um, but they they never do that. They never do this with working class jobs. If you've noticed, they never they never they never you never see a report like this, and they're bringing up some you know a working class profession and say, well, we need more diversity here. This needs to reflect the diversity of the uh, of uh, of of the community. Or I should say, they very they very rarely do that. And when they do do something like that, because we did hear from Pete Buttigieg a couple of, couple of weeks ago about how there's not enough uh, diversity among construction workers. So if they do bring it up, they, it, it, it could be guaranteed they bring it up in a way that's totally divor- divorced from reality. Because there's already a lot of racial diversity among construction workers. But even then, it's very, it's very limited. So for example, um, how many female roofers are there like in in what sense does the does the roofing profession reflect the uh, demographics of the country certainly if you break it down along gender lines it's not reflective at all same for let's say trash collectors or plumbers 
definitely if you break it down along gender lines, not going to be, not, not going, not going, it's not going to reflect. You know, all the people that are working on roofs, it, 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 that workforce does not really reflect uh, the identities of, of the people that are living under those roofs. They're not as worried about that, though, are they? My, my second question is, if you are going into surgery, let's say, for, for anything, um, what do you want to know about your doctor? What's going to make you feel, feel better? What's going to make you feel more confident? Is it his skin color? Like, what do you want to know? Do you, do you, what, 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 would you, what do you want to be sure of? Do you want to be sure that he um, got into this position because he's the best of the best and because he got there by merit, right? And he's, he's the best qualified based on his merit, based on his skill, based on all that, his experience, his training. Do you want to know that? Right as your eyelids start to get droopy from the anesthetic, do you want to have that thought in your head? That these people, they're there because they're the best and, that's, and, they, and they, they earn that spot and so I'm in good hands? Or do you want to think, wow, this is a very diverse operating room. Is that going to make you feel good as you drift away? Potentially for good, you know, to not wake up again. Because that's what's going to happen more and more as diversity in these kinds of professions is prioritized over just simply who's the best. Speaking of workforces, Daily Wire has this report. Amazon employees are furious as the company rolls back remote work arrangements, with some threatening to quit and others drafting petitions in reaction to a recent announcement that they must report to the office at least three times per week. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy wrote in a memo to employees on Friday that the company believes teams tend to find ways to work through hard and complex trade-offs faster when they're in the same physical location. Shortly after the announcement, hundreds of Amazon staffers started joining an internal Slack channel called Remote Advocacy, where they were um, there were more than 14,000 members of the channel as of Tuesday. Nearly 80% of the workers of the channel claim that they would start to look for another job because of the new policy. So if they had to actually go to work physically, then they would look for another job because this is a deep, uh, this is a, you know, this is an affront against them. One disgruntled employee wrote, this is going to be absolute chaos and make everyone's work distracted for probably a quarter, maybe longer. It's hard to be productive with so much uncertainty injected into our lives. The shift toward uh, more traditional work arrangements, however, comes as Amazon seeks to downsize amid macroeconomic tumult and a decline in uh, consumer demand that followed the lockdown-induced recession. Amazon dismissed some 18,000 employees over the past several months. Um, Employees in the Slack channel nevertheless drafted petitions against the return to the office, to office policy. Says, we, the undersigned Amazonians, are responding by petitioning for the right to choose where to work, including remote locations. The petition included survey data, which found 56% of Amazon employees desire monthly sync-ups in the office, while 31% want to work in the office one or two days per week. You know, there's, um, when, I, when I hear about these controversies about, you know, these, still these companies and um, corporations that have not gotten back to working in the office, and so there's these employees that uh, think they have a right to stay home and work from home, it reminds me of this of a Louis C.K. bit where he talks about his first experience years ago using Wi-Fi on a plane, and the Wi-Fi goes out, and a guy behind him gets mad that the Wi-Fi is down, and it's like because it's, it's a brand new thing that they just had, it goes away, and the guy's mad about it. And Louis C.K. points out that like how how quickly does the world owe you something that you didn't even know existed until ten seconds ago, and I think that remote work is a, is a little bit like that where people feel entitled to work and earn a living without ever even leaving their beds. And that's, that's, that's an option that didn't exist until 10 seconds ago. Now, you can point out all you want, as people often do in this conversation, that the, the nine-to-five job, um, you know, leaving your house and driving across town or to another town or maybe going to another state in some cases to go work in a different building for, for eight, eight to ten hours a day and coming home— you can point out that that is also a comparatively new phenomenon. That's an invention of the industrial age. And that's certainly the case. Sure. And there was a time when family units, um, in effect, you know, like they, they, didn't, they didn't have to leave their homestead or their home in order to work. But, but 
if you go back before the invention of the 95, they, they weren't just sitting around on their couch all day. Okay, they, they had to leave. They, had to, they were still doing work. Uh, you know, go out and work in the fields or something. So the idea that you should be able to earn a living without ever even leaving your bedroom, that you should be able to do that, that you have like the right to do that, that is as modern as it possibly can get. And to me, it's pretty clear that, uh, I mean, does it, does it, we can talk about whether it helps, you know, is it, is it good for your job? Is it good for the company you work for when everyone lives all scattered throughout the country and they're not physically working together? Is that good for, you know, does it, does it make you work better? Does it, does it improve the, the, the kind of work that you're doing? Is it better for, uh, for especially things like creative collaboration? I think obviously not. But then there's also the question of, is this good? Is it just, is it a good thing for the country? You know, to take an, to, to isolate people even more than they already are and to take yet another, um, another piece of like human to human in-person interaction and to take that away and to replace it with screens. Is that, is that actually, is that a good development for society? It's hard to imagine how anyone could argue that it is. So get back to work if you work for Amazon. That's what I'm trying to say. Let's get to the comment section. Well, in case you hadn't uh, happened upon it yet, we have new SBG swag available over at dailywire.com shop. We here at Daily Wire understand the vortex of evil can be a bit chilly at times, so we're giving you solutions. Pledging fealty to the gang has never been cozier with the new Sweet Baby Gang script hoodie. Script hoodie, what does that mean? The wardrobe staple of a gray hoodie meets the moral obligation of donning the appropriate garb of a dedicated sweet baby, Two birds, one very comfortable stone. But why stop there? The SBG blanket is here to make your dream of repping the gang from the comfort of your own home a reality. Every gang member needs to have a cozy blanket. That's what I always say. It's what they say out on the streets as well. Take it on the road for sporting events or just to keep in your car. I wish I had one of these in the early days of my podcast. got quite chilly uh, when I was homeless in my car. The Sweet Babies in the uh, merch department churn out new products for the Swag Shack all the time. So be sure to check back routinely for the next best way to reaffirm your commitment to the gang, but you got to go to dailywire.com slash shop today. Terrence says, Matt, I've never felt as much brotherhood with a celebrity as I do with you. Keep, keep it up. We're standing behind you. Well, I hate to tell you this, uh, Terrence, but you still don't have brotherhood with a celebrity because I'm not one, but I appreciate you all the same. Uh, Sir Sketchable says, uh, Matt's new strategy to fill 10% of his daily show time with clips from the day before's show. Well, hey, it, you know, look. If it works, it works. If they, if they, if that content is presented to me, then uh, then that's that's what I'll do. It's not just filling time. Um, you know, it, maybe it's a little bit like my when I was in middle school and my book report strategy was to like you know it had to be two pages, a page and a half of the book report was just summarizing the book before you make any point about it. Um. Guy says, I completely agree that Matt is telling the truth when he said his best Jeopardy games are the ones when no one is there. He started off shouting alone in his car to barely anyone, and now here he is. Yeah, I think that's probably a lot for a lot of people. It's just the way it goes. You know, you're, you're best playing Jeopardy when you're alone in your living room. This is also when I, when I this, is, this is legitimately when I catch the biggest fish also, is when I'm fishing alone and no one else is around. That's when I catch, catch the, uh, it's also, it's when I, when I'm fishing alone and, um, and my phone is dead, so I can't take a picture of the fish. That's when I catch the really big ones. It's just how it goes. Weed, which is the username is Weed. Uh, wasn't Matt saying a few years ago that a national divorce is necessary? When that woman comedian, Sarah Silverman, I guess, said something similar on a podcast and Matt agreed, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that's why I said I've, I've been, along with other mostly conservatives, I think, although Sarah Silverman isn't, been talking about this national divor- divorce idea for for years. Um, and I've always said that I understand, you know, I understand the argument for it in theory. I've given, and I've explained that position. Um, and there was probably a time when I, when I would have, when I would have said, yeah, let's, let's actually try to do it. 
my, my thinking on it has changed, though, um, for all the reasons that I gave yesterday. You know, to beginning with the fact that it's just not possible, you know, and especially in recent years, I've tried to, it's like, you, we can talk in theory about things, we can talk in the abstract. What would be the best thing? Like, what's the most ideal? Uh, if we could do anything we wanted, what would it be? There's value in having conversations like that, but I, I do like to focus more now on what is practical and what is actual and what can really happen. And the national divorce, for geographic reasons to begin with, can't happen. So that's one thing that's changed my thinking on it. And then also what I said yesterday about how, you know, I, I just, it is, it's hard for me to see that as anything but surrender. You're giving up, what, half the country to these people? I'm not going to do that, and I refuse to do it. Um, so that's why my thinking has changed. Um, MK Ultra says, my theory is that Gloria Johnson let Fetterman write that tweet for her. See, this is proof, by the way, that I am nice because uh, we had that Gloria Johnson incoherent tweet up yesterday. And, uh, and, and people say I'm not a nice guy. I almost made a Fetterman joke, but I, but I didn't because I wanted to be nice. So I switched to uh, Kamala Harris instead. So I was going to mock one person. I mocked somebody else instead. That's what counts as niceness for me. Callie says, you're so right about game shows being such a gamble with a very real possibility of being a viral fail video for the rest of forever. My family was actually on Family Feud, and my brother is the chicken noodle suit guy on there. Basically, the prompt from Steve Harvey was, what kind of suit is not appropriate to wear to the office? My brother had a brain fart and said, chicken noodle. He's now a firefighter in every station he's ever worked at, uh, has, known, he's, has, has known him as soup, and even has a Campbell soup sticker on his helmet when they gear up. The best part about it is that he was convinced that my dad was going to be the one embarrassing the family with some kind of fluke. He even said, Dad, pay attention to the prompts. I don't want to end up as some YouTube fail. Now, every Family Feud puts out a, a best, best fails of the series video, and he always makes the top five. Just desserts for giving our dad a hard time, if you ask me. Well, I have to tell you, I'm sorry to hear about your brother's humiliation. But in order to appreciate how sorry we should really feel for him, because again, I am a nice person and very empathetic, uh, and I want to know just how sorry should I be. Uh, and I th also think for the sake of being able to pray for him in this difficult time, this difficult time, which is the rest of his life, I suppose, I think we need to watch that video because I'm not even familiar with this. Um, but here is the video that you're referring to. Guys, here we go. Point values are double. We got top five answers on the board. Name a kind of suit that's not appropriate for the office. Chicken noodle. <laughs> You don't wear no damn chicken noodle soup in here. Birthday. Birthday. <laughs> that's tough. I'm sorry for your brother. Um, that's a tough one. You know, on one hand, on one hand, it's not as bad. Like, it's not as bad as the, as the woman yesterday on Wheel of Fortune who had the one letter to guess, and it was fresh fruit, and she only needed the S, and she said G to spell freg fruit. Like, it's not as bad as that because it's he did mishear the question. And so I can understand that. You know, suit sounds like soup. But then why would they be asking about inappropriate soups for the office? Are there is what and are there office soups and then um, home soups? And if there is an inappropriate soup for the office, why would it be chicken noodle? I mean, that would be the that would be the most appropriate soup for the office. Now, when I think about What's an inappropriate soup for the office? Um, I guess I would. What, what comes to mind are soups that are especially pungent in odor, uh, so you wouldn't want to, you know, heat those up in the break room microwave because they. So then it's like French onion, okay? So that if you hear it that way, then why wouldn't your answer be French onion? Because that's obviously the kind of soup that you don't want to bring to the office. It smells bad. It smells too much like onions, and you're going to smell like onion. Uh, but chicken noodle soup, that's the the most bland inoffensive soup there is. And also if it makes, if you make the, the break room smell like chicken noodle soup, who, who would complain about that? It smells like grandma's home cooking in the, in the office. What's wrong with that? So I want to say that that was not really an enormously stupid answer because it was really just, he misheard him. But even based on 
what he thought the question was, it still comes down to being a stupid answer. So we will continue to pray for your brother. It's no secret the left hates our country and wants to rewrite history. They villainize our heroes. They omit key details from the historical record, like the fact that on Christmas night, 1776, George Washington only crossed the Delaware River in a sneak attack against the British forces after shaving with a Jeremy's razor. Few people know that. Sad reflection of our great nation going woke, our history being erased. But like Washington before us, you can fight back against woke tyranny simply by picking up a magnificent Jeremy's Razors during our 30% off President's Day sale. It's time we celebrate history, not cancel it. So unless you want our founding fathers renamed to our founding non-birthing parents, you got to go to jeremysrazors.com today and get 30% off any razor. That's jeremysrazors.com today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Well, it's been about four weeks since the last one, so we're right on schedule for another left-wing race hustler activist to be revealed as a secret white woman pretending to be a person of color. And right on cue, Raquel Avita Saraswati, whose real name is apparently Rachel Elizabeth Seidel, has uh, stepped up to the plate. The post-millennial has the story. A prominent Muslim activist who claimed for years to be a woman of color has been outed as white as the driven snow by none other than her own mother. Raquel Avita Saraswati, born Rachel Elizabeth Seidel to parents of German, British, and Italian heritage, fooled people into thinking she was South Asian, Arab, and Latina. She even managed to use her fake ethnic credentials to score a role as the chief equity, inclusion, and culture officer at the American Friends Service Committee, a progressive Quaker organization that fights for equality and social justice. According to The Intercept, the 39-year-old had converted to Islam in high school and has been masquerading as non-white for nearly two decades. I don't know why she's doing what she's doing, Saraswati's mother, Carol Perone, said. She's chosen to live a lie, and I find that very, very sad. I'm as white as the driven snow, and so is she. Um, Oscar Pierre Castro, one of the human resources officers who took part in Saraswati's hiring, claimed that she had touched all the points by presenting as a queer, Muslim, multi-ethnic woman. I definitely feel conned. I feel deceived, he said, following the revelations that her identity was a lie. Now, Rachel hasn't said much publicly as her story has uh, fallen apart. On Saturday, she tried to stall for time, tweeting, I assure people that as soon as I'm capable, I will provide answers to the recent discussion and attack on me. I understand all the reactions you're having. I'm currently taking the time to get to where I can answer in a way that is most helpful and thorough. Yeah, she needs to go on another journey of self-discovery to find out why she was pretending to belong to five different victim groups. Uh, she, needs, she needs you know, to get to a place where she can really see the answers to those questions. Well, I can help her with that. Um, Rachel, you did it because you saw it as the easiest way to accrue social capital. It's as simple as that. Like so many other people in our culture today, you are not confident in your abilities to succeed based on your own merit. You don't think you have anything of value to offer the world. So instead, you tried to ride a wave of pity and self-victimization. You hope to achieve success and gain esteem through manipulating society's victimhood algorithm. You, you engaged in the societal equivalent of clickbait. You presented yourself as a victim because you know that these days, victimhood is power. Yeah, that's the answer. Okay, you're welcome. This kind of story is, is barely interesting anymore. Rachel Dolezal made the mistake of being slightly out ahead of the trend. And so her deception was major news for days on end. And even to this day, she remains infamous, like a household name. So, um, but so many have come after her that now it's become routine. We all, we all already assume that at this point, probably half of the black activists in the country are actually white women. Like, we just assume that. And each time a new one is revealed, it barely leaves a blip on the radar screen. But there was another somewhat similar, though different in key ways, story this week that I find uh, much more fascinating. And, you know, we know how it plays out when a white activist pretends to be black. But what happens when a black activist finds out that she's white? or at least much whiter than she thought she was or ever hoped to be. That brings us to Angela Davis, who is a Marxist, a former Black Panther, a longtime race hustler who in recent years has popped up doing things like leading the Women's March, calling for the abolition of the police and of the prison system. Well, she appeared this week on the PBS show Finding Your Roots, in which prominent people are presented the results of DNA tests, tracing their ancestry back uh, generations to see you know, where they come from. Angela Davis was not exactly thrilled with her results. Listen. Any idea what you're looking at? Yeah. That is a list of the passengers on the Mayflower. 
<laughs> no, I can't believe this. <laughs> no. <laughs> My ancestors did not come here on the Mayflower. You, your ancestors came no. on the Mayflower. No, no, no. You no. are descended <laughs> no, no, no. from one of the 101 people who sailed on the Mayflower. Oof. That's a little bit too much <laughs> to deal with right now. Did you ever in your wildest dreams think that you may have descended from people who laid never the foundation never. for this country? Never, <laughs> never, never, never. And just like that, the oppressed becomes the oppressor. The colonized becomes the colonizer. Now, for a normal person with a healthy mindset, It'd be, a, it'd be an exciting and interesting thing to find out that your lineage goes back directly to the Mayflower. You know, I'm pretty certain that mine doesn't, but if it did, I'd be incredibly proud to know that I'm descended from uh, people who, as the host says, laid the foundation. I would also be proud that my roots in this country go that deep. Uh, that would be a, that'd be a wonderful thing to find out. Angela Davis, on the other hand, reacts, she reacts like a deadbeat dad on a daytime talk show, finding out that uh, he really is the father. Like she's, that, That's how upset she is. Actually, it gets better because she's descended from a pilgrim on her father's side. What about her mother's side? Well, as it turns out, her maternal line leads directly back to a man named Stephen Darden, who is a white man, uh, a Revolutionary War soldier who moved to Georgia after the war and became a slave owner. So Angela Davis has deep roots in this country indeed. Um, it's slave owner and a pilgrim. Finding out all this information, Davis said, uh, quote, I always imagined my ancestors as the people who were enslaved. Yes, well, we know you did, Angela. This has been, to say, uh, to say the very least, a, a very interesting Black History Month for Angela Davis, as it would seem that her own Black history is far less Black than she expected. And the only question now is, you know, I, I guess, who does she make her reparations check out to? Herself, perhaps? I don't know. Now, of course, in reality, the details of Angela's family tree are nothing but interesting historical tidbits. As I said, anybody with a healthy perspective on things and who finds out that their lineage traces back to the Revolutionary War and then all the way back to the Mayflower would be fascinated and, and thrilled and filled with patriotic pride. A healthy person is not upset to find out their ancestors were quote-unquote colonizers, especially as there's nothing inherently wrong and often quite a lot that's heroic and virtuous about you know, starting colonies, especially back hundreds of years ago. So I'm not saying that Angela Davis actually has anything to be ashamed of or to apologize for, but the trouble is that Angela Davis, according to her own ideology, says that Angela Davis has much to be ashamed of and to apologize for. As a left-wing racial activist, she's a proponent of the idea that oppression trickles down through the generation. She believes that the early settlers of this country were land thieves and evil colonizers. She believes that people who descend from slave owners carry that guilt with them. Uh, this is what her worldview professes. And now it's turned against her. And, and we would have to be soulless to not enjoy the spectacle at least a little bit. But perhaps there's a lesson to be learned here, though. A lesson that Angela Davis and her left-wing race-hustling ilk need to learn. Uh, the rest of us already know it, but this is, this is uh, news to them. And the lesson is that the historical oppression math is much more complicated than they want it to be. Angela Davis descends from slave owners and from people that she would call colonizers. Many white people in this country descend directly from poor European immigrants who came here a century or more after her great-great-great-great-grandfather bought his first slave. So who's more historically oppressed in that case? If we start handing out reparations, should people who descend from early 20th century immigrants pay reparations to a woman who descends from a slave owner and a pilgrim? See, the picture is rather cloudy, much more cloudy than these people want to admit. And that's because, obviously, everyone descends from the oppressors. Everyone descends from the oppressed. Everyone has pain and suffering and blood and sweat and tears and heroism and guilt and sin and virtue and failure and achievement all throughout their lineage. If these things can be passed down in the bloodstream, then it's, it's very difficult to tally up the points at the end and figure out who's ahead. Even people who actually descend from slaves may also descend from slave owners and slave traders in Africa if you go back another generation or two. The world was a brutal place and still is. 
And it's always been funny to me that the people who love to find moral gray areas everywhere, who constantly are talking, oh, it's a gray area. You know, we can't engage in black and white thinking. Well, somehow they can't see the gray areas here where there actually is a gray area, where it's just nothing but a giant gray area. When deciding, when deciding the good guys of history or the bad guys, the oppressed, the oppressor, all you find if you, ta- if you look through a wide enough lens is a whole lot of gray. And this is not a problem unless you're looking to stand on your ancestors' graves in order to claim victim points today. Then it becomes a problem. That's what Angela Davis and her fellow race hustlers have always done. And that's why Angela Davis, the granddaughter of slave owners and colonizers, is today canceled. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. If you're not a member yet, become a member and use code Walsh at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.